We are continuing the beginning of our series in the Gospel of Luke, um, and in this Advent season, looking at it as the way prepared. We heard the promise in Malachi a few weeks ago of God preparing the way for the Lord's visitation, and now we are seeing that work even last week as the announcement of the birth of John was made to Zechariah. Now we continue in the preparation for the coming of the Lord as we read together Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, commonly known as the Annunciation. Would the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word to his glory. Luke 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray further for the Spirit's illumination as we consider God's word. The Holy Spirit, by the power of the Lord, overshadowed Mary and conceived our incarnate Savior. By your creative power, work within us faith and obedience. Illumine us in heart and mind to the truth of your word so that we might worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Bless me as I seek to proclaim your word. Bless the hearers this morning all for the glory of your name. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's been said, and we often say, and perhaps we try to remind ourselves in this season, that less is more. Less things taking up space in the garage or attic. Less emails, less Zoom calls. Less is more. But in this season of Christmas preparation, we really truly are much more of the more is more mindset. More decorations, more times to celebrate with people, more gifts to buy, more cards to send, more cookies and cinnamon buns and cakes and hot chocolate. So very often in this festive season, 
more is more. I confess to falling prey to this myself just a few weeks ago. We went to get our Christmas tree, and our Christmas tree was shorter than years past. It wasn't seven feet, it wasn't eight feet, it was mere five and a half feet. And I have to confess that it felt like going backwards. It's a beautifully shaped tree. It smells beautiful. It looks great. But I thought somehow Christmas might be diminished. Our enjoyment of Christmas might be diminished because the tree was a few inches shorter. But is the more is more mentality fitting for this season of expectation of our Savior? Is it fitting for the rest of the year as Christians? When we consider the annunciation of the birth of Christ this morning, we can't help but compare the greatness of the angelic message with the humble setting in which it is presented. The humble young woman hearing it. And for all the wonder of what is announced, what the angel says is understated, is veiled compared to the glory of what is to come. And yet for all of what was said and what it could mean for Mary, her response is humble, faithful submission. Less is not necessarily the ethos of Christmas preparation. It's certainly not the ethos of life in America. But maybe less. Maybe the, whole, the lowly, the humble, the weak, the vulnerable, even the needy. Maybe in the humble, there might be a better way to prepare to celebrate the birth of our Savior. And in humility, a better way, perhaps in light, to prepare for the return of our humble king. Perhaps our preparation for his return might be found not only in this season, but throughout the mission of God's people as we wait for the return of the king to forever, once and finally consummate his kingdom, to be awaiting in humility. This morning, as I talk about humilities, use the word humble, I, I just want to acknowledge two things about the way that we use this word. Humble, on one sense, can just mean lowly or lacking. To be of humble estate or a humble background is to not have very much. It's just to speak of that which is lower or less. And then there is the virtue of humility where we do not consider ourselves greater than we are, where we look to others to be greater than ourselves. Given that the Lord often works in and through people of low status, the weak, the needy, the poor, then whatever our status be, whether it be high or low, let us humble ourselves in response to the king this morning as we give attention to his annunciation. First, let's consider the humble beginnings of our Savior. This event in the history of God's people, God's redemptive work, is tied overtly to what came and what we read before in Luke's gospel. It says six months, and then the angel makes it clear that this is six months since the announcement to Zechariah about the baby that would be born to Elizabeth. And whereas Zechariah, the priest who is given this high honor of burning incense in the holy place, receives the angel of the Lord's announcement in Jerusalem, in the temple, 
Mary receives yet more glorious news in the backwoods by herself. First, consider where she's hearing this. She's in Nazareth. Luke knows that the common reader of the gospel, his account of what God did in the life of Jesus, would not know where Nazareth was. Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. He had to let the reader know where Nazareth was. Well, it's in the larger region of Galilee. It's like when I'm outside of New Hampshire and people ask me, well, where are you a pastor? I'm a pastor in Pembroke, New Hampshire. And there's a blank look. And then I say, well, it's near Concord, the capital. And then there might be a faint nod of recognition. Nazareth is a nowhere. And because it's a nowhere, it's not looked highly upon by the people who do know where it is. We read in the Gospel of John an invitation to come and see and hear what this Jesus of Nazareth is saying. And in John 1.46, Nathanael responds, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It is a humble place that the birth of the king is announced. It's announced to a virgin. The angel confirms that what is about to happen is not based on the power or the agency of Mary, nor is it based on the power and agency of mankind as it would be in the normal way in which a child would be conceived. Joseph is not going to be part of this picture. What is going to be happen is completely without the power or work of Mary, but only the power of God to bring about the conception of this child. As the angel makes clear, as Gabriel says, this is the Spirit's work, this great and wonderful thing, this announcement that the promised Son of God, the promised King, the the promised descendant of David, the Messiah that people have been waiting for for hundreds of years is about to show up. Where is this announcement made? We so much as open up an ice cream store and we have billboards on the side of the road. Here is the coming Savior of God's people and the announcement of that news is to a lonely, isolated woman in private in a backwoods. Even as the angel greets Mary and describes her as favored one, is clear that what is here is the bestowing of a gift on a lowly one. Despite certain theological tendencies and historical trends to build up Mary greater than she is, and and let's be clear, Mary is worthy of honor, Mary is worthy of respect, she is an example of faith and humility as we'll see in a moment. She is not blessed to bear the Savior because of anything in her but the bestowal of favor from the living God. in a humble place to a woman of humble means without hubbub without her power the birth of a savior is announced this is not a woman looking to or expecting to be the mother to the Davidic king long promised and yet here she is the announcement is even more amazing given the circumstances described Notice the starting place. Though though Joseph is of the line of David, and so legally Jesus would be recognized as part of that line, as we'll learn later, he's a carpenter. 
in a backwoods. And, and so what is being described is here, this virgin young woman in a nowhere place without anything known about her except for the small town where she lives and her betrothal to this lower middle class working man is that somehow they will go from this to the king of God's people, to the Savior. The announcement isn't just grand in what it says is going to happen. It's grand for the amount of distance that must be traveled from the circumstances described in this passage to what will come in the future. And so in this lowly estate, the promised Messiah is claimed to a family with no military connections, who are not rich, who are not well-connected. In these humble circumstances in which the coming birth of the Savior is announced, God's provision is on display. This is his will. This is his power. It's his timing. To be low, to be weak, to not have power or connection does not mean God cannot or is not working. On the contrary, it is so very often the very way in which God chooses to work among his people. God chose Abraham and Sarah, an old and barren couple, to birth not only a child but a nation. God chose Jacob, the younger brother, not Esau, the one of lower status in society, to receive the blessing and the birthright. God said in Deuteronomy that he chose Israel, not because of their size, but because they were less numerous than the other nations, not because of their greater righteousness, but because of the evil that they would be used to displace by God's power. David, the king in whose line the Savior would come, was the youngest of his brothers, not tall, not masculine, not kingly in the cultural assumptions of the day. God works in and among the weak, the lowly, the needy, that his glory might be evident. Even as Jesus is named, the Lord saves Yeshua, otherwise Joshua, is a hint at what is being displayed, that it is the Lord who saves. This is not Joseph's plan. It certainly isn't Mary's plan. This is God's work. In this announcement, what we are meant to behold is the power and glory of God to work. The angel says nothing will be impossible with God. That's not something we tend to think when we have time, money, power, and prestige. Because we assume, of course nothing's impossible. Look at my power, look at my money, look at my, my influence. But it's in those circumstances that we are least likely to look to God to lead, to direct, and to save us. This morning you might be in a place where you are saying, God cannot use me. I don't have the time. I don't have the education. I don't have the personality. I am too weak too small for God to use me. Dear one, brother, sister, he glorified himself in the womb of a young, unwed virgin living in a town that the people of the day could not locate on a map. If God can glorify himself in Mary, 
bless her in that work in her, then surely he can use Christ church. Surely he can use you, even little children, to glorify himself. God works and begins things, mighty things, in humble settings. And even as God is doing these wonderful, amazing things that display his glory, so very often that glory is still veiled. That there is even yet more to be seen than we first understand. There are some glorious things announced here. Let's not diminish that. First, there is the glorious fulfillment of prophecy. God spoke to David through the prophet Nathaniel in 2 Samuel 7. I will raise up your offspring after you and shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There is a promise of an eternal kingdom. And yet when God's people, through their disobedience, through their idolatry, diminish in power and influence such that they are eventually taken into exile, yet even in the coming of exile, Isaiah proclaims in chapter 7, particularly in chapter 9 and 11, that there will come one in the line of David. That there will be a shoot. Though the stump of Jesse, that is David's dad, seems to be cut off, yet God will raise up one in the line of David. A miraculous sign is proclaimed. This is fulfillment of what Isaiah said. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, and a son shall be called Emmanuel. This is going to be a miracle. The Holy Spirit will overshadow her, and this language of overshadowing, it speaks of what happens when the Spirit of God, the glory of God, descends upon the tabernacle in Exodus 40, verse 35. This is a revealing of the presence, the glorious presence of God, and it would be appropriate for us to conceive that through the Spirit's presence, through this language, that though Mary might miss it, there is a hint that in the nine months in which she will be bearing the Son of God, her womb will serve as a temple. Not because of anything in her, but because of the holiness of the one within her. This child will be holy because he's conceived by the Holy Spirit that is set apart by God and set apart for what purpose? Well, it says he's going to be the Son of God. And for those of us who have grown up in Christianity or around the church, we hear Son of God and we immediately go to the divinity of Jesus. And you're not wrong, but that's not what Mary would have heard. Son of God is a title for kings because they have a unique place of power and a unique place of responsibility with regard to the Lord. It's their job to shepherd the people under the authority and according to the blessings of God. So she hears something wonderful, that he's going to be holy. And the kings were the anointed ones. They were set apart. They were special. And this one, too, will be a king. But there's even more here than Mary would understand. The name Yahweh saves, Yeshua, Jesus, is a common name. This was a very common name in those days. And she would have heard, this is just the name that God has directed me. God is saving his people because he is preparing to send a deliverer. And yet in that name is the truth that the one to be born to her is Yeshua who saves. Is Yahweh who saves, excuse me. 
that the promise here of an eternal kingdom is not just that he will have an eternal line, but that he will eternally reign over that line. That he will be holy not just because he is from God, but because he is God. And even as we look back through Scripture to see how these things develop, these things that were not clear to Mary, we see that even as this glorious good news was displayed in the life of the promised king, how he went about when people wanted to make him king, they wanted to set him up on the throne. He said no to earthly glory. He said no to earthly power. He humbled himself to the opportunity to be made king so that he could be the type of king that God sent him to be. He sat in the temple under the word, though he was the word and the proper object of temple worship. He endured death, even death on a cross, so that he could establish his kingdom eternally. The incarnation itself is a demonstration of the willingness of our Savior to humble himself, making himself low in order to glorify the Lord in our salvation. And so what all this means is that God didn't tell Mary everything all at once. The disciples walking with Jesus did not understand everything at once. Greater was yet to be seen than she realized. Nothing will be impossible with God. Even later in Jesus' ministry, when he goes to the mountaintop and Elijah and Moses appeared to him in what we call the transfiguration, which his glory shone out, we recognize that as Jesus walked among us, his glory was veiled. And Jesus came, as according to what Galatians 4.4 tells us, at the fullness of time. Or Ephesians 1.9.10 tells us that God always had a plan and he revealed that plan in Christ. What does this mean for us? It means we don't have to understand when the fullness of time is. We don't have to understand the fullness of what God is doing. We may only get hints and shadows of how God is working out his glorious will, and yet our lack of comprehension and understanding does not diminish the glory that he is accomplishing. Kids who are at school, you don't have to understand trigonometry to learn from your teachers that two plus two is four. Kids, when your parents tell you you need to save your money, it's not because you understand that one day you're going to have to pay taxes and light bills. You don't have to understand everything that your parents are saying and doing. Students, you don't have to understand everything that the teachers are doing to receive what they do show that they are doing and teaching you. We couldn't understand the mind of God who is infinite in his knowledge and wisdom. But what God does reveal is glorious. And even when it is not one we expect or how we expect it, when it's in a more humble circumstance, we can trust him. We don't always see what God is doing, even as he is in the midst of us doing it. That might be scary, but that is a wonderful thought. It's wonderful that we cannot comprehend. The language of comprehend means to get our arms around. Our minds cannot get their arms around God. For if they could, he would not be God. If my mind could comprehend, if your mind could comprehend God, then would he be an infinite, eternal, all-powerful God? No. 
But the good news is that though we cannot understand him, he comes down. He speaks to us. As Calvin says, lisping like a parent to a child. He reveals himself. He even takes on the form of a servant that we might be with him. In humble circumstances, God works that his glory might be revealed. And even as glorious things are happening, they are often veiled compared to the glory yet to be revealed. And so how should we respond? When God begins to work glorious things, good things in humble circumstances. We too should respond with humility. The humble response of faith. I don't begin to know, and it would be dangerous for me to assume to know, everything happening in the mind and heart of Mary as she hears this news. But I would encourage you to imagine the last time you got life-changing news. Whether it was positive or negative. You're going to be a grandparent The company is downsizing. That news can come in a flash, but even in that brief moment, our minds, aren't they able to go to all those places and all those implications? What am I going to do now if the job is lost? What are my options? What are my opportunities? What are my assets? Who do I know? Even before the announcement is done and you finish reading the email from the uppers. Your, your child announces the birth of a grandchild. Is it going to be a boy or is it going to be a girl? I can't wait. How are they going to do that with their job? Uh, how much are they going to want me to help out? Our, our minds can immediately go to those things. And I don't know which things went through the mind of Mary, but certainly she had questions. And in her humility, she seeks to understand. But notice how she does it. She wants to understand so that she can trust. Even as we talked about with Hezekiah, asking a sign that she might trust in this wonderful good news that Isaiah announces to him that he's going to live. She wants to be led. She wants to delight in this good news. And so she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, because this passage is connected to what we just read of with regard to Zechariah and the promise of the birth of John, we might scratch our heads because didn't John ask the same question and get in trouble? Well, first of all, he says, how shall I know this? Not, not how will this be, not, not show me. He's saying, I'm not sure that that can happen. How can I know this? He is demanding proof that he could understand in order for it to happen. Whereas, and, and on the other hand, there is the fact that this is not the first time this has happened in redemptive historical history. This happened to men and women throughout the story. What the angel Gabriel is saying to Mary has not happened before. But she seeks to understand because she wants to be led. We contrast that response with Zechariah, but also with King Ahaz. And you might be questioning, well, why would, who, Ahaz? The promise being fulfilled that the virgin will conceive and give birth to one named Emmanuel. And there's hints even of the name Emmanuel, even though it's not made explicit in the passage. Because what does the angel say to her? The Lord is with you. That promise of a sign was made by the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz because Ahaz was told that God would defeat the enemies allied against him. And Isaiah, speaking on behalf of the Lord, said, Ask a sign. I will prove it to you. 
Ask as high as the heavens and low as the earth. I will show you whatever you want. And in false humility, he says, no, I can't do that. Because looking at the overwhelming odds, he lacks faith. And so, you th- so Isaiah's response, God's response is, if you think that's impossible, then let me give you something else impossible. A virgin will conceive. God offers a sign of Elizabeth's pregnancy. The point is not that we can ask, can't ask. Moses asked how he would be used of God to deliver his people from captivity. Gideon wondered how he would be used of the Lord to defeat the Midianites in the way in which he was supposed to. It's not that she doesn't want to know, but she asks independence. And at the same time as she's asking this, in humility and a desire to trust him, she says no to grasping. A humble response of faith to what the Lord is doing, even as he is working something glorious, is not to attempt to try to grasp that glory for ourselves. Notice how Mary responds, even as she's heard this wonderful news, as she's given this sign that she can trust in. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. It's appropriate to translate that word, slave of the Lord. Even as she hears that she's going to be the mother of the king, she is unwilling to grasp at the earthly glory that could be hers by potential. And we know, reading the history of God's people, that that is a temptation. Just go back and read 2 Kings with regard to Jezebel or Athalia and how mothers of the king seek to grow their own power through the power of their son. And yet, hearing this wonderful news, knowing that this is a blessing to herself, she responds as a servant. She says no to grasping at glory, but in her humility says yes to God. What are some of the things that she has to say yes to as she says, let it be according to your word? possible loss of Joseph as her betrothed. She may be saying yes to shame in the community who will reject her not knowing where this son came from. She will be saying yes to the unknown dangers for her son as he would come to become king. Notice she is living under the oppression of Rome, the most feared military and political entity the world had ever seen. While this is glorious news and she has trust, what might it cost for this child to become king against the evil of that great empire? She says yes to the costs. She said, I can't, I don't need to know it all. The Lord has spoken, the Lord has demonstrated, and come what may, I depend on the Lord. The ideology of less is more should not cause us to want to humble ourselves or seek less for more for more sake. But rather, we want less so that the more we receive is the glorification of God. A willingness to work in humility and powerlessness in lack of provision, in lack of influence, trusting that in our humble circumstances, God's glory might be even more vividly demonstrated.
and the greater that God's power is at work, the more we realize that it is even greater than we understand. That what we once thought was impossible that is coming true speaks of yet something that we have yet to even think of that is yet to be demonstrated. That greater is the present and what God is doing than we understand now, and so much greater in the future is what God is promising to fulfill than we could ever perceive. And that less, our less, our service, our putting ourselves behind what God is doing, our dependence on Him, even when we don't fully understand, God is pleased to use our humble response of faith, saying no to grasping at God's glory, but by saying, let it be as you have said, having a part in the glorious things that He is doing, the things that echo throughout eternity past and to eternity future. Brothers and sisters, would we prepare in humility, in lowness, in weakness, in dependence in the coming King? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you did not abhor the virgin of womb, that you were willing to be born to one in Nazareth, to go and enter the world in the birth in Bethlehem, to be despised and forgotten, esteemed not, and ashamed with people turning their face away from you so that in your life, in your teaching, in your death, and in your resurrection, you could demonstrate the glory of God greater than any power of man, greater than any empire of man. We praise you. In the name of Christ, amen.